Hello and welcome to the history of the Germans, third and last part of the prologue. Again, thanks a lot for coming along and I hope you will enjoy this third and last high-speed run through thousand years of German history. Last episode we left off with Pippin the Short being crowned King of the Franks by Pope Stephen II. Today we talk about Pippin's eldest son, Charles, known to history and to us as Charlemagne. No introduction needed. Charles must have been an impressive sight. I mean, here's what his biographer Einhard had to say about him. Charles was large and strong, and of lofty stature. Though not disproportionately tall, his height is well known to have been seven times the length of his foot. The upper part of his head was round, his eyes very large and animated, nose a little long, hair fair, and face laughing and merry. Thus his appearance was always stately and dignified, whether he was standing or sitting. Although his neck was thick and somewhat short, and his belly rather prominent, but the symmetry of the rest of his body concealed these defects. His gait was firm, his whole carriage manly, and his voice clear, but not so strong as his size led one to expect. His health was excellent, except during the four years preceding his death when he was subject to frequent fevers. At the last, he even limped a little with one foot. In 768, when Charles succeeded his father, he was probably 20 or 21 years old. As was the custom inherited from the Merovingians, Pippin had split his kingdom in two parts, between Charles and his brother Carloman. Carloman had the decency to die in 771, under circumstances that were no further investigated. Let's just say that Carloman's wife and children ran away to Lombardy as fast as their legs could carry them. Having become the sole ruler of the kingdom, he started a series of military campaigns that would last almost his whole life. The first one was the war against the Lombards in northern Italy, who he beat comprehensively in 774 and had himself crowned King of the Lombards. In 778, he invaded northern Spain and over the years managed to gain control over the strip of land between the Ebro River and the Pyrenees, including Pamplona and Barcelona. Still restless, he then picked a fight with the Bavarian duke, who had become a bit too uppity. So into a monastery the duke went. Having pushed the borders quite a lot further east, he finally found himself facing the Avars. The Avars were one of these steppe nomad tribes, like the Huns, the Magyars and the Mongols, that have been raiding Europe regularly since around the 4th century. Thanks to their superior cavalry, composite bows and archery skills, the Avars had built themselves a veritable empire in Central and Eastern Europe based in Hungary. Over the course of three major campaigns between 791 and 796, Charlemagne defeated them and brought home their treasure. Finally, we come to the most important campaign for our story, the Saxon War. It was the longest and bloodiest campaign of his reign, going on for nearly 30 years. The Saxons were the last of the major German tribes or stems that were still pagan, and both his father Pippin and his grandfather Charles Martel had fought them for years without success. To get an understanding of where they lived and the structure of Germany at the time, I have put a map on the Facebook page. Broadly speaking, 
Germany consisted of five major parts, as they would later be called duchies. In modern geography, it comprised what we used to see as West Germany before the 1990 reunification, plus the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland and Austria. In simple geographic terms, this is a tilted rectangle, where the four corners are Brussels, Hamburg, Vienna and Zurich. This rectangle breaks down into five smaller rectangles. Two on the bottom, two at the top and one in the middle. The bottom right one is Bavaria. That includes Munich, Regensburg, but also Salzburg and Vienna at the time. The bottom left is Swabia. That is not just Stuttgart and Mannheim, but all the way down to Switzerland, including Basel and Zurich. And then there's one roughly 200 kilometer big strip that goes west to east, roughly on the level of Frankfurt. That is Franconia. North of there, we have the top left-hand rectangle. That's the Rhineland, including Cologne, Düsseldorf, the Netherlands and Belgium, which will later form the Duchy of Lothringia. And the top right of the rectangle is Saxony. Do not get that mixed up with the modern state of Saxony, which is much further east. Saxony, at the time we're talking about here, comprised roughly the part of Nordrhein-Westphalia that is east of the Rhine, so that's the Ruhr and Westphalia, plus the current states of Lower Saxony, Schleswig-Holstein, Hamburg and Bremen, roughly the area where Varus's legions had perished almost 800 years earlier. Got that? Or maybe better have a look at the map. So back to our story. The Saxon War started in 772, when a band of Saxons burned a church in Deventer, in the modern Netherlands. That gave Charlemagne the pretext to attack the Saxons. In a rapid campaign, he beat one of the Saxon tribes, the Angrians, and occupied their land around modern Minden and Paderborn. At that point, most of the Saxon leaders capitulated and Charlemagne claimed control over the whole of Saxony. Not content with just temporal control, Charlemagne decided to take over control of minds and beliefs as well. He felt the sacred Irminsul, a wooden pillar or tree the Saxons believe held up the sky. That would be roughly equivalent to King Joffrey coming to Winterfell and cutting down that weird white tree with the purple leaves. Somehow, the systematic destruction of symbols of pagan religion and the forced baptisms failed to endear the locals to their new Frankish overlords. Therefore, the next logical step was to bring on more destruction of symbols of pagan religion and enforced baptisms. And when that did not work, yes, exactly, more wanton destruction of symbols of pagan religion and more enforced baptism. So every time Charlemagne's troops left to fight one of these other wars we've just talked about, the Saxons rebelled. These uprisings were usually led by a Saxon noble called Widukind, which means literally the child of the forest. He, unlike the other Saxon leaders, had refused to give homage to Charlemagne after the campaign of 772 and organized resistance from across the border in Denmark. In the ensuing decade, Widukind led almost annual rebellions against the Franks that always ended as soon as Charlemagne showed up with his army. Only once, in 782, did he win a pitched battle. However, this battle was far from decisive, and Charlemagne retaliated by holding what was later known as the Blood Court of Verden, where he allegedly had 4,500 Saxon rebels executed. And again, 
the stubborn Saxons still did not understand that their new god was omnibenevolent. What followed was another two years of now continuous warfare, which only ended when Charlemagne managed to capture Widukind himself in 785. Widukind agreed to get baptized in exchange for his life and disappeared into a monastery. In the next 20 years, there were further Saxon uprisings until by 804, all Saxon tribes had been defeated and baptized. Except for about 10,000 Nordalbingians were broken into smaller groups and settled elsewhere. So if any of you ever go drinking cider in Frankfurt Sachsenhausen bars, remember that is one of the places where the Nordalbingians had been deported to. Now the weirdest thing is about Widukind, because despite his cowardly conversion, he became a folk hero, and his probably alleged descendants will rule the German Empire for over 200 years. By the end of the Saxon campaign, most of the fighting had been done. Charlemagne now ruled an empire that extended from Denmark to Rome and from the Atlantic coast to the Elbe River. When in 1957 the EU was created through the Treaty of Rome, the founding countries of France, Italy, West Germany, Belgium, Netherlands and Luxembourg were looking for a historical precedent for their new political entity. And guess what? It looked almost identical to the empire of Charlemagne, and so he was elevated to some sort of proto-European. To this day, the priest Charlemagne is awarded annually for services to European unification in the name of Charlemagne. So I'm the last person to scoff at an attempt to bring medieval history into the conversation, but there's really very little that convinces me Charlemagne's motivation was to create a unified Europe. It's more likely that two things drove his relentless fighting and conquering. The first was simply that war and booty were necessary to maintain the organizational structure of his kingdom. And secondly, he probably really believed that he was doing God's work. A king in the early Middle Ages had hardly any income in peacetime. He had his royal estates, some judicial fines and tolls, but he could not raise any direct taxes. If he wanted to maintain an army, specifically one that included the super expensive new breed of armoured horsemen called knights, he needed money. On top of that, he had to provide local administration. To do that, he appointed a comes for each district. The comes was an old Roman military title that later became count in English and comte in French. The count had to administrate the counties, keep the peace and provide justice. Moreover, they had to raise soldiers when asked, which was basically every year, and if needed, defend the county. To pay for all this, the count could use the income from the crown estate. So these counts were administrators, i.e. they could be replaced by the king and were regularly reviewed by the missi, the royal messengers, usually high-ranking officials or bishops. So if you were a count of Tuscany and you were enjoying the fine wine and food under the Mediterranean sun, that did not mean your son would become count of Tuscany, or any count at all. Even worse, one day you could receive a letter from the king that you are to settle your horse and take on the defence of Schleswig against the Danes in the pouring rain. Since the king had no means to pay you for this service, there was only two ways he could make you do it. Either the promise of lots of plunder, 
or the promise of receiving some of the royal domain as private property. Offering plunder was a lot cheaper, so Charlemagne preferred war to handing over his precious lands. But the search for plunder was not his only motivation. Charles, like his father and his grandfather, was well and truly pious. He did believe he was a servant of God, and what he did to the Saxons was the will of the Lord. With a distance of more than a thousand years, it is hard to fathom how different religion is in the context of the Middle Ages. In Western society, we, for the most part, see religion as a private matter. In the 8th century, it was not just a, it was the public matter. There was no separation of state and religion. It was the opposite. The church was the state and religion was the society. The king was the head of the church and so wherever the king of the Franks rules, Christianity rules. And so the more lands the king of the Franks rules, the more Christianity rules. But beyond just enforcing formal adherence to Christian faith, Charlemagne pursued a deeper objective. To get on the right path to heavenly reward, you need to know what this path is. Bringing knowledge of the faith to the people is as much a success for the leader as acquiring the lands. Therefore, Charlemagne sponsored a massive educational program, spearheaded by some of the greatest minds of the age, brought together from inside and outside the empire. The focus was first and foremost in book production. So Charlemagne sponsored scriptoria and libraries in the major monasteries, as well as right at the center of power in his palace in Aachen. These scriptoria were crucial for the preservation of the knowledge of antiquity. Crucial not just because of the scale of the production, but also because of the writing material. In antiquity, books were written on papyrus. So unless you hide it in a cave in a waterless desert in Sinai, papyrus decays very rapidly. The Carolingian monks wrote on parchment. Parchment is basically an extremely thin leather that can last for hundreds of years, which is why we still have some actual Carolingian physical books today and practically no physical writing from antiquity. But that is not all. Because the point was not just to preserve the text, it was also to make them accessible. One key problem was that text from antiquity was almost unreadable. There were no gaps between words, little punctuation, and no upper and lower case. Charlemagne wanted every priest to have at least one readable copy of the Bible so that the priest would tell actual Bible stories rather than making up some tall tales. To find the person to produce all these Bibles, he looked to Ireland and Britain, where many religious texts were preserved whilst the rest of Europe burned. He turned to Alcuin, an English monk, scholar, poet, teacher and polymath, born in York in 735. And Alcuin did not disappoint. He developed the Carolingian minuscule script, which we today call the Latin script. So he is solely responsible for all the red markings on my English homework, but boy is it easier to read a text when there is a gap between words, the occasional comma and upper and lower case. And now we come to the bit that is the reason Charlemagne deserves our admiration, despite the fratricide and the Saxon massacres, and that is the preservation of the ancient pagan Greek and Roman texts. Even though in some way Charlemagne can come across as a religious fanatic, he encouraged the preservation and the reading 
of those ancient texts. As Alcuin said towards the end of his life, that he, by the grace of God, was giving the honey of the Holy Scriptures, making others drunk on the old wine of ancient learning. So a huge number of the stories that Stephen Fry so beautifully recounts in Mythos and Heroes would simply no longer exist without Charlemagne and Alcuin and Einhard and all the other monks of his circle of scholars. During the Carolingian Renaissance, this massive upgrade of knowledge translated into practical applications. Levels of literacy improved, making it at all possible to have a centralized bureaucracy. I mean, think about it. A royal charter is a lot more effective if the recipient can read what it says. Numeracy was another huge focus. Alcuin developed math and logic tests that would challenge some of my kids had they come up in GCSEs. Improvement in mathematic literacy allowed the introduction of uniform weights and measures, as well as the introduction of new coinage. And all that culminates in church reform. Priests and bishops were now expected not only to know the Bible, but also to lead an exemplary life. They were to establish schools to teach the boys and girls to read and write, sing and recite the Psalms. But it was not just the priests and bishops, all the people in the realm should improve themselves and improve their moral and spiritual health, including the emperor himself. And guess what? In the same text that sets out the obligation of the priest to behave, the admonio generalis or the general admonishment, he also includes his new rules on weights and measures, ideas about architecture and tax rules. Did I say there was no distinction between the state and the church? Charlemagne clearly could not do all of this by himself. He had a sort of proto-government established, the Paladines. These were mainly members of the clergy who would over time be awarded plum bishoprics or abbeys. Our friend Alcuin, for all his efforts, would become Bishop of Tours, well-earned indeed. This government had some rudimentary departmental structure and would send our delegates on mission, the Missii, whose job was to check on whether the counts were doing their jobs properly and at the same time whether the priests and bishops followed the new rules of the general admonishment. Again, no distinction between church and state. With most of the wars completed and the realm sufficiently admonished, on December 25th, 800, Charlemagne was crowned Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III. And that made him the first Roman Emperor for 325 years. The date and the name of the Pope are pretty much the only uncontested facts about the coronation of Charlemagne. Charlemagne's propaganda machine insisted that the coronation was some sort of accident. His biographer Einhard said that had Charles known that the Pope would crown him that day, he would not have entered St. Peter's even though it was Christmas. In his official documents, when he refers to his title as emperor, he insists on being crowned by God. The idea that Charles was surprised by the coronation is more than far-fetched. I mean, Pope Leo III had come down to see Charlemagne in Germany a year earlier. And Leo's visit was not exactly a holiday. Leo came because Rome's nobility had just ambushed him and had tried to blind him and cut out his tongue. He was asking Charles for help, but he did not have much to offer in exchange. The only thing that was in play was the imperial title. And that had more to do with what happened in the Eastern Roman Empire than what was happening in Rome. In 800, 
Byzantium was ruled by Empress Irene, a lady not quite in the mould of the Gentle Maiden. She had taken control of the Byzantine Empire after the death of her husband as regent for her son. Now when her son inconveniently grew up and started to have ideas of his own, she had him first blinded and then killed and declared herself sole ruler in 798. She's a really nice one, isn't she? Pope Leo and Charles were so abhorred that they considered the throne of Constantinople vacant. What were they abhorred about? The infanticide? Uh, no, not really. What they found unacceptable was that Irene was a woman and as such could not, should not and would not be sole ruler of the empire. And that gave Leo a bargain chip. Come to Rome and you could become emperor and I get my papal throne back. What Charlemagne objected to was not the crown of emperor. What he did not like were the optics. In a world where images are everything, if it looks like the Pope awarded Charlemagne the crown, then the crown had been awarded by the Pope. What makes it worse, his dad had already received his crown as King of the Franks from Pope Stephen II. And Charlemagne was right to be worried. That image of the Pope crowning the Emperor will be hard to eradicate and will cause an almighty fight between the Emperor and the Pope that will be won by the King of France. Beyond that, becoming Roman Emperor made sense for Charlemagne. By 800 he ruled an increasingly polyglot empire which was only in part Frankish. It also comprised Lombards, Burgundians, Saxons, Bavarians, Gallo-Romans and even Basques, assuming Basques can be ruled. These groups would find it hard to identify with the King of the Franks, but a reformed Roman Empire, that would be a great narrative to bring all these people together. And just to prove the point that Charles did not mind a spot of infanticide, he seriously tried to marry that fearsome Empress Irene. That has sparked a lot of rather futile speculation about what would have happened if the ancient Roman Empire would indeed have reconstituted. But seriously, do you think the Byzantine elites would have accepted a Frank as their new emperor, based on an unholy union with a murderess? Having brought about a real massive leap forward for his empire, one crucial reform he failed to undertake. Charlemagne himself and his successors still believed in the equal partition of their empire amongst their male heirs. In other words, they still believed their kingdom was not a state, but a personal property. There was a bit of respite initially, since all of Charlemagne's sons, bar one, died. This son, Louis the Pious, was not so lucky. His three surviving sons, Charles the Bald, Lothar and Louis the German started fighting each other before Daddy was even dead. After a near decade of civil war, they finally agreed on a split of the empire in the infamous Treaty of Verdun in 843. In this agreement, Charles received West Francia, which would later turn into France, Louis received East Francia, which would later turn into Germany, and Lothar, the lucky one, received a long strip of land going north to south, so from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, sandwiched between France and Germany. This kingdom included the Netherlands, Belgium, Burgundy, Alsace, Lorraine, Provence, French Switzerland 
and northern Italy, plus the imperial crown. So Lothar got by far the richest peace, but it was also the hardest to defend. Unsurprisingly, Lothar's kingdom quickly disappeared, but this strip of land would be contested for 1,102 years, killing not just hundreds of thousands, but millions of people. Charlemagne's descendants inherited not only the habit of perennial civil war from the Merovingians, but they also managed to degenerate at a fast rate of knots. The West Francian or French line held out for the longest time until 986, going through the already mentioned Charles the Bold, Louis the Stammerer and Charles the Simple, and were ultimately replaced by Hugh Capet, whose family reigned until 1789 or 1830, depending on where you cut it. The East Francian or German line was shorter-lived and only contributed Charles the Fat to pub quiz trivia. Charles the Fat had actually briefly managed to unite the empire under his rule, but as soon as he passed, the previous entities reasserted themselves. The Carolingian line in East Francia ended in 911 with the death of Louis the Child at the age of 18. By 911, the East Francian kingdom barely resembled the empire of Charlemagne. The king no longer directly controlled the counts. Charlemagne's administrative system had worked exceedingly well whilst the empire was expanding. As long as the counts had the opportunity to plunder and extort, they were happy to move around the empire at a moment's notice. Once the empire is at peace, their motivations and their powers changed. Imagine the king sends a new count to replace the current incumbent. That is quite easy if the new guy comes with a letter signed by Charles the Great, by the grace of God, Roman Emperor and King of the Franks. Imagine the new guy shows up with a letter signed by Charles the Fat, by the skin of my teeth, still King of East Francia. So it was just easier to leave the old count in place, and when he died, replace him with some at least semi-competent and halfway loyal member of his family. The third time this happens, the new count really cannot remember which of the estates he controls were originally his granddad's private property and which were part of the crown estate. So it's better to put it all into one pot, just easier to administrate. If the king sends a letter and says, give me back my farm or tolls or court fees, the count again looks at the signature and it still says, Charles the Fat, by the skin of my teeth, still king of East Francia. Not only had the king lost control of his counts, four dukes had successfully inserted themselves between the king and the people. Most of these were descendants of the aristocratic families that Charlemagne recruited his counts from or were distant members of the Carolingian family itself. They had managed to assume control of multiple counties and finally bring them together as duchies, roughly mirroring the much older tribal duchies or kingdoms of the pre-Carolingian period, i.e. Swabia, Bavaria, Franconia and Saxony. After the last Carolingian king, Louis the Child, had died in 911, the dukes decided to elect one of their number, Conrad, Duke of Franconia, to be king of East Francia, a.k.a. Germany. And as soon as he was elected, they told him to never bother them again. For the next seven years, Conrad fought incessant wars with each one of the dukes, trying to stamp his authority on the kingdom. 
On top of that, the Vikings were raiding the north of the country and the Hungarians the south. It was utterly hopeless and in 918 Conrad gave up and died. His brother Eberhard was now the most senior duke and he should have received the crown. But that is not what happened. As we will see in the first episode of the podcast proper, Eberhard will forsake the crown for someone else. Someone who had no claim whatsoever to the throne, but will prove to be one of the most important German kings, who did not get called the Great, though he probably would have deserved it. I hope to see you next week. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and any future episodes will miraculously appear in your feed every week, I promise. And if you want to go a step further, leave a comment and a rating. That would be really very much appreciated.